Okay, yeah, we're live. Okay, well, hey, this is uh, Real Sankara Hours podcast. Um, I'm Adam Hudson, my co-host. I'm, I'm Peter M. Gunn. Um, and yeah, we're here to bring you the real shit um, into black yeah. liberalism. Yes. And all those things. Yes, pretty much. We're pretty much like if you... If you're sick of like the kind of conventional black liberal political thought, um, listen to us because we're an antidote to that, basically. Um, so yeah, so I guess a little bit about the both of us is this is this is our first our first episode, our first episode into the podcast market ecosystem. Uh, I'm Adam Hudson. Um, I'm a freelance journalist, and a musician. Um, a lot of my stuff is at Truthout, Alternate, The Nation, um, other progressive uh, outlets. A lot of stuff I write about is uh, Guantanamo, policing, gentrification, um, U.S. foreign policy. Um, and yeah, I just finished graduate school. I have an MFA in nonfiction writing from University of San Francisco. Go. And what are they? What are they again? They're the Dons. Go Dons. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> particularly excited about about that mascot. It's Jesuit University. Right. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm Peter M. Gunn. I guess that's what we're going with. No need to throw the government out there since most of my writing is done under that name. Um I'm currently in Portland, Maine, the whitest state in America. For some reason, don't ask me why I'm here. Um, why are you there? I, oh my God, I, <laughs> I, I ask. I'm still figuring that out. Ostensibly, I'm working on a novel, or you know, also trying. I was initially a freelance writer, I suppose, though not. I did not nearly get paid for as many things as you did. Um, yeah, is the yeah the payment for freelancing is notoriously not that great. So, <laughs> That's putting it mildly. So now I'm just a blind cook and all around internet degenerate, tanky asshole, um, <laughs> and you know we're. Um, do you want to talk about maybe sort of, I guess, your like political evolution and I guess how we linked up in the first place? Sure. Yeah, that that that's actually that's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, my political evolution. Uh, well, I can't really pin it down to one particular event. It's more of like a sort of slow rolling evolution. I mean, um. I, I grew up in a very, um, I live in Pittsburgh, California. It's about 20 minutes outside of Oakland where, where I was born. Um, I was raised in a pretty, I'd say, um, black household in a sense. Like I was always very steeped in black culture and um, thinking. And so right around, I'd say the Bush 2000 election and 9-11, that's when I really started paying attention to the news more. And I was a teenager then, so it's like that stuff was happening, you know, being a teenager, trying to figure yourself out. So on the one hand, I was, I was, um, you know, figuring out my black identity, but also paying attention to the world around me 
particularly the Iraq war and trying to pretty much make sense of myself and the world around me. Um, so yeah. And then when I went to Stanford university, which is where Peter, Peter and I met as college students, Oh, um, not, I, got, I don't think technically when we are actually students. Oh, you're right. I think, yeah. I mean, well, we crossed paths, but we met, I think, officially. Yeah, you're right. Like, I think after. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, so at Stanford, I was involved in a lot of, like, um, I was involved in the NAACP and uh, anti-war uh, activism. And so um, I think, like, a lot of my politics are pretty much centered in in <clears throat> black liberation um and uh a critique of um economic inequality and capitalism because where i grew up in pittsburgh was it's largely blue collar working class and mostly non-white and then stanford is the complete opposite so <laughs> balancing between those worlds i i that's when i really started di- diving into stuff like Marx and trying to make sense of, of how economic inequality works and how that ties with racism and imperialism and all that. Um, so I guess like that's kind of my political evolution in a nutshell. And I, you know, uh, I guess self-identify, which is weird. Cause it's like, like you ever, are you ever like in leftist spaces and they're like, what's your political uh, ideology? It's like, how do you identify politically? It's like, it's this weird little sort of ritual that we do. So yeah, um, you do, you do have to feel people out sometimes though. Cause y- yeah, most, from most people, it doesn't matter. But when you're in like those circles, it's, it's good to just know where people are coming from. Right. But yeah. It is, so, it is weird because you yeah. you go through like five different things, especially in your twenties. Oh. oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I would say, like, for the most part, what I've settled on is like I'm I'm basically politically a Pan African socialist, Pan African leftist, um, and I see Pan Africanism is like you know essentially seeing all people of African descent um, as a, essentially one people and sharing the same uh fate collective fate um and my yeah my my sense of politics is is uh, largely centered on, on that concern but also a concern for other marginalized people who suffer under the boot of of white supremacy so you know other people of color both within america and and uh overseas as well so uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much my intellectual um, tradition, so to speak. Okay, yeah, cool. Um, I grew up in well, I was born in Hillsdale, Michigan, which is an extreme hotbed of reactionary thinking. But I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, um, in what some people termed the hood, but it never really felt that way when I was growing up. I mean, it was, a, it was generally like a working class. It's actually a pretty integrated neighborhood, but it was sort of like on the border of places that were more seen as the ghetto, I guess. Like if you cross the major street, then it was like, like there were, there were like streets that were two or three blocks from me where people were like, I would never go. I would never cross that street type situation. Um, 
basically, um, you know, went to urban Columbus public schools, which was pretty notorious for being bad at the time, that typical kind of urban school model. Um, I always felt kind of weird in the sense of like, um, cause you know, I guess I lived like in a black neighborhood, like the, a lot of the kids around me were black, but, and I went to like, well, mostly black schools, but, um, we, like all my extracurriculars were like with white people and mm. I was, I guess I was, you know, it was also, I was very confused about, I guess, my mixed race identity until, uh, like 16 or 17 when I started getting, doing anti-racism work with the Unitarian church that I grew up in. Um, and this was like way before Tumblr and all that stuff. So I really oh, got yeah, like, yeah, I really was like on the ground floor and was learning about white privilege and systematic racism and all that stuff, institutional racism and stuff when they were still like radical concepts and weren't hadn't been thoroughly colonized by Democrats and corporations and stuff. Um, and I think that's actually weirdly one of the reasons I got in to Stanford, but um all, you know, also growing up during the Iraq war, that definitely had a big effect on me, but my parents were pretty solid Democrats. Um, you know, NPR was always playing, um, you know, soak that stuff in. I was pretty apolitical during college. Um, I just kind of took that period off, I guess. I don't know. I wasn't a great student, but I made it out um, with an English degree and no idea of what I wanted to do. So I basically like hung around for another year. And that was right when Occupy Wall Street started. And I think and, that's where I think that's where you yeah. and I crossed paths. Yeah, that's what that's where we yeah. ran into each other. I don't even remember like specifically what it was, but. It's like an Occupy meeting or something. And then I remember, I think I found your blog. And, yeah. Um, you know, then we, I guess, started talking. And then we were in a band for a year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I had to lug my amp all the way on the BART. <laughs> which was fun. Um, Those were the days. Yeah. But Occupy really gave me, you know, I really feel like that was the first part of like sort of the political awakening that's gotten us to this point in terms of yeah you know before that people like didn't talk about capitalism at all you yeah. know it was all like corporate power and stuff like that but yeah i yeah and i remember like because my degree is in international relations and i took a lot of <clears throat> poli sci in econ classes and this was so i graduated in 2010 and the crash happened the beginning of my junior year of college and i remember around that time like there was a shift like i remember when i first got to stanford like my freshman and sophomore year everyone was like 
a lot of people were like, uh, especially if you, if you were doing econ or anything related, oh, the sort of the hip jobs were like consulting, investment banking, stuff like that. Then when the crash hit, people were like, okay, we're not going to do those jobs anymore. Like it was not as sexy to be in an investment <laughs> banking too. right when the, right when the crash hit. So there was yeah. definitely a yeah, there was definitely a sh- a real shift in terms everyone, of everyone start working for Facebook, right? Yeah, <laughs> well, fa- yeah, because fa- Facebook, I think, well, during that, I'd say between 20, 2008 to 2011, I think that's when there is a shift from like that sort of emphasis on iBanking to tech. And so like in between that time, the, the period I'm talking about, like there was a, 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 a sort of a vacuum that needed to be filled that I think tech filled in culturally that iBanking previously filled. Uh, but during that period, it was like it was a big huge shift in terms of what people had to think about the economy and uh capitalism and that was you know um bush that was the end of the bush term and he left office pretty much in disrepute and i feel like people forget <laughs> that that like one of the main reasons why obama got elected is people hated bush they were like, he so was, just done with anything republican <laughs> And this is important to, th- to consider now with Trump because everyone's like anybody but Trump. It's like, well, we've seen this script before with Bush. Like there was this huge – like the Republican – and I remember back then people were like, the Republican Party is dead. It's over because of Bush and Cheney and da-da-da-da because people finally – I mean like when the Iraq war first was announced, like I was against it because back then I was like – you know, every, every, everyone with half a functioning brain was against it. I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. And there were in, and, and, you know, there, so finally much of the country real realized that like, yeah, the WMDs and then the connection to nine 11, like the, the justifications for the Iraq war, which was one Saddam Hussein had, uh, connections to Al Qaeda nine 11, which wasn't true. And then the <laughs> other one was like, Oh, he has like, uh, you know, nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction also proven to not be true. Once yeah. the country realized that then there was hurricane Katrina. Then there was the revelation about the CIA torture program in Guantanamo. There is just scandal and scandal and fuckery after fuckery in the Bush administration that people were so fed up that like, yeah, we'll go with Barack Obama, like a black dude with, a, yeah. a funny name who's talking about hope and people went with that, you know? And yeah. I think like that's something important to important to consider now, because I think particularly with this never Trump mania, I think like there's a lack of historical memory. Like people forget that like, yeah, okay, just because you're so pissed at the Republicans that, that doesn't mean you have to sort of let your guard down when it comes to the democratic party. And yeah. and I, and I think and I think the real lesson here is like it's really fucking important to scrutinize these Democratic candidates, which will segue into what we're going to be yeah. talking about. If I, if I may continue, yeah. though. Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> yeah. so, I'm, I'm sorry. Sort of bogarted that. No, I I it's my I I guess I have a tendency where like I like will set up something and then I have a pause and then other people. Well, then jump in that I suppose it's not entirely media friendly, but after so going through Occupy was a pretty it was a profoundly radicalizing experience, specifically because and this is another thing I think people forgot about when it happened because they think we're just like, oh, it was a failure. You know, it didn't do anything. But 
the entire like state apparatus mobilized to crush it and like when they dis when they disassembled those camps it was like literally thousands of cops showed up oh um, yeah in new york or la in basically every city like hundreds or thousands of cops showed up you know i was almost in j28 which was this protest in oakland in 2012 they were they arrested 400 people and i was almost one of those people um and you know the other thing that it really kind of ingrained in me was like the at that point i guess i considered myself an anarchist but i had a lot of questions about how anarchism can really mo be you know organize effectively against the state um so after that after that kind of died down i spent a year in san francisco trying to be like an anti-tech journalist or something um you actually you it was actually because of you you got me my only paid journalism gig and that's actually <laughs> when i realized i can't I don't I never really want to I can't really do reporting um, because I don't like talking to strangers, but I was doing that, you know, basically getting paid 50 bucks, um, you know, to write an article a month for uh, this like youth radio public media thing um, and doing like task rabbit type stuff. Um, And then that kind of fell through. And also basically all my friends that were in San Francisco moved out because I call it like I was, I guess, like doing a trustafarian thing without a trust fund. But like, so, all this... uh, so just to put a timestamp, yeah. this is around like uh, 2013. Like, what yeah, year was this? 2012, 2013. OK. Um, and then I moved back to Columbus and basically, you know, got a job started delivering pizza in my old neighborhood which let me tell you something delivering pizza to your old high school will do will definitely mess up your ego um oh man (laughs) especially when your like face is on is like on the wall as like national merit something but Mm. um and while doing that i had I was writing at like one of the alternative newspapers. I had like a well, paper started out weekly, then it went monthly. I had a column in there, um, and really, I spent two years doing that, and that was really when a lot of things crystallized because that was like the first time I really, you know, sort of understood like th- the like physical reality of like wage labor and like having your surplus value extracted and like, you know, all those sort of abstract concepts really crystal, you know, became clear to me, like right in front of me and also driving around in my old neighborhood. I mean, there are some places Columbus, Columbus is like not a Rust Belt city. And it's like the, you know, it's around that in the past, in that decade, it really like grew and became like a, you know, more like an Austin type, like hip city, but mm. or at least it thought it was. I mean, I still <laughs> like it, but um, 
there were also just parts that were completely neglected and you know so you know simmering in that you know really kind of made me dive deeper into like marxism specifically and then like the history the actual history of communism and putting things together and you know the broader you know u.s imperial apparatus and this is also you know when ferguson was popping up and all that stuff and that and so that was when i basically officially called myself a marxist leninist and that's still how i identify today so you know that's a problem i guess don't listen to us but um you know most marxist leninists i don't know i feel like we get a bad reputation but we're all nice people you know we're not gonna gulag you unless you're i mean unless you're like <laughs> fucking dick cheney okay but like, you know most people it's fine uh i think yeah i'm glad you mentioned um occupy because yeah, like there was, I remember, like, because I was working at The Nation, I interned at The Nation in 2012, and that was a year after the first, you know, Occupy encampment at Zuccotti Park in Manhattan. And um, even around then, some people were saying, oh, Occupy is dead, and there was like a kind of a one year sort of anniversary encampment there. Um, but I do think, like, the reason why Bernie Sanders is as popular as he is now is because of Occupy because Occupy, well, there was a recession and then Occupy was that reaction to it because I think the the 2008 recession, I think opened up the underlying contradictions and the shaking foundation, the shaky foundation of capitalism, particularly the sort of Reaganite, clinton neoliberal capitalism that was pretty much the dogma of the 80s and the 90s and much of the the 2000s yeah um and 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 that that whole foundation that whole edifice just came crashing like a stack of cards right well yeah and that was it got revealed for you know the global derivatives market yeah which was like 700 trillion dollars i mean yeah that kind of that instability and like, you know, the whole thing is basically built on sand and can collapse at any moment. And it's basically held together by people's belief that this is the only system that can exist. I mean, I don't think people quite realized exactly how catastrophic everything could have been. Um, oh, yeah. And that and- system isn't really it's still basically the same. I mean, Dodd-Frank didn't really do anything. No, and and, and not even just Dodd-Frank, but Obama's response to the recession was like just putting a Band-Aid on it when you needed like, I don't know, open heart surgery or or something. Mm -hmm. So, and I think because of Obama's, like the recovery wasn't really a full recovery because a lot of the jobs, the post-recession jobs um are a lot of them are contract labor part-time labor temp labor um and a lot of jobs that are you know used to be conventionally middle class or even more insecure than before i mean look at um higher education right with professors yeah a huge chunk of the of the faculty workforce at four-year universities even down to community college most are adjuncts (laughs) 
and you're getting paid like semester by semester, like barely salaried. Um, and there are some fat, there are some adjunct professors I've, I've read that like have to basically live in their cars or, you know, resort to sex work in order to make ends meet. So, yeah. the, so which Obama, is, I would, I should say that like, mm-hmm. I obviously have plenty of criticisms of the material function of academia, but I think when people go after academics sort of in a reactionary fashion, they need to remember that like most academics, especially ones like speaking anything left it, you know, leftist politics, like are not, you know, tenured six figure professors. I mean, they're right. Exactly. They're, you know, basically working minimum wage jobs. And it's similar with journalism. I mean, you know, my profession, I mean, free, like I'm a freelance journalist, right? And I, I teach on a side in order to pay the bills. And so there are, I mean, I've, I've seen, I've heard so many stories of friends of mine, colleagues, peers in journalism who like have had to experience layoffs and a perpetual cycle of it, unstable employment in journalism. And it's like, you know, we talk so much, particularly in the Trump era, about the importance of getting truth out. Well, how the hell can you report the truth when much of the journalism workforce is, again, part-time contract labor, right? So yeah. that or, this is... Yeah, an- or there's like the Columbia J School people. I mean, there's like the, the small amount of people who get the New York Times jobs or whatever. But those people like have to come from backgrounds where they can afford the money to go to Columbia J school, you know, and then, you know, two years of internships. So it really is like a class divide among like the journalist class is not the same kind of profession. It was like 40 years ago. Right. Yeah. And a lot of like, you know, there's also like unpaid to low paid internships you have to do in journalism to get your foot in the door at those publications. So like, you know, if you don't come from a particular class background or even a racial back background, right? Because especially if you're black, you're not coming from generations of intergenerational wealth, largely as a result of slavery and institutional racism. So you're already like, you know, at a deficit at that end. And so the Obama administration, like, was largely a very, a very, very weak response to a catastrophic economic mess, right? And, and I think, like, particularly some of the, I think that really provided a lot of the left populist energy that you see in someone like Bernie Sanders and why he's so popular because the reality for so many people in this country is that of real widespread economic insecurity, stagnant wages, insecure employment, um, on top of a very, very bloated private health insurance system that basically <laughs> condemns it people to death because it's, it condemns people to death because they do not have enough money to pay these insurance companies and also the greedy hospitals as well. So, and I think that's one thing important to keep in mind when it comes to Sanders because Sanders' rise didn't come in a vacuum. Like I don't think it was just like like Sanders. You know he's no. been, yeah, he's clearly yeah. been in the in the game for a long time. But yeah. he's popular because of Occupy put anti-capitalist thinking on the map in, in a way that did not exist before. It's certainly like these critiques of capitalism that we're hearing now did not exist in the two thousands. You could, you sure as fuck could not say it in the nineties, especially under yeah. Clinton, right? So 
it took this crash in 2008, then the Occupy movement, and also the the pretty much the very weak response of the Obama administration to respond to particularly the homeowners who were severely crushed by the yeah. foreclosure crisis. Even where I live, Pittsburgh, California, like it, it was one of the yeah, Pittsburgh, I mean, Antioch, they were hit hard. Wells Fargo alone foreclosed on like 2 million houses. Yeah. And so that was my justification for not paying them on the stupid credit card they shouldn't have given me when I was 18. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, and now, and like, I think some, you know, things are even coming out now where it was like, Obama, like city, basically had Citigroup pick his cabinet for him. Um, yeah. And like, you know, they, and like, Congress was willing to bail out the homeowners instead of the banks. Um, like they put, you know, basically laid that out to Obama um, before, before, like basically when it was clear that he was going to win. And I'll have to, I'll see if I can, I think this was on True and On um, where they were talking about this. Um, but basically. We can probably- Sorry, yeah. we can probably put it in like the show notes or something yeah. um, later on, like after we after we finish. So, um, but basically, they were like, like Bush had signed off on that, and they, you know, they're like, we need Obama to sign off on it because you're basically going to be the next president. And he was like, no, you know, they're like, I'm going to make the decision. When I get in there. So, you know, there was a very specific, you. Know, like, yeah, that whole the way that all played out really sort of revealed the degree to which finance capital owns, you know, the entire country and, you know, the entire world economy. Um, yeah. And yeah. And I um, so I want to I want to segue to this scorecard, but just to kind of transition, <clears throat> you know, this is a I mean, we kind of start in the end saying that, you know, we're the antidote to black liberalism. And by that, I mean, like, by that, I mean, like, you know, particularly what's been really kind of fashionable nowadays, particularly since I think Black Lives Matter is to use um, racial justice um, rhetoric to basically, basically, I I always consider it's like it's a lot of this is racial justice rhetoric to to show that you're in solidarity with black people and people of color. But I think a lot of times that rhetoric is a lot of is 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 kind of a lot of times it could just be pure hot air and lacking in in like political economic analysis. I want to draw our attention to so I saw this racial justice scorecard. And just to be clear, I don't I don't want to come across as besmirching the work that nonprofits in general yeah, who, do yeah who is this the yeah so this center is the for urban center and racial equality or equity yeah equity so, yeah center for urban and racial equity so this is not to like totally trash the organization but i do think the reason why i wanted to discuss this is because i think this scorecard shows the limitations of the current racial justice rhetoric that's pretty prominent particularly in this election so they have this scorecard and it says 
where do the presidential candidates stand on racial justice? Now, um, and, and I'll, I'll read their little um, kind of quick blurb. So the next, they say, the next president should have a plan to address racial inequities, dismantle structural racism, and work meaningfully with our communities to push for racial justice. The 2020 racial 2020 racial justice presidential candidate scorecard summarizes the president presidential candidates policy proposals through a racial equity lens across key areas, including criminal justice reform, education, healthcare, voting rights, reparations, environmental justice, immigration, indigenous rights, and policies to close the racial wealth gap. We are offering this scorecard to elevate racial equity in the candidate selection process and to help voters who care about racial justice make an informed decision in 2020. Now, my reaction to this wasn't like my initial reaction is wasn't quite with what the organization is trying to do, because I do think in general it's good to have good to hold candidates accountable on issues of structural racism. But what what initially struck me was like the people I know who shared it, who care about racial justice and th the sense I got from them, right, was. So I'll, I'll go through the rankings. So they score, they have rankings. So Elizabeth Warren got an A minus, ninety one out of hundred. A student for that's that's who loves Elizabeth Warren. All the A students. Yep. And then Bernie Sanders got a B plus, eighty eight out of hundred. Pete Buttigieg, B plus, eighty six out of one hundred. Which yeah. as a te as a teacher, I feel like an eighty six out of hundred is normally a B, but. Uh, anyway, because um, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I think eighty six out of one hundred is normally a B, but he got a B plus. But whatever. Anyway, Amy Klobuchar, she got a C, seventy three point seventy three point five out of one hundred. Tom Steyer, D, sixty seven point five out of one hundred. Joe Biden, D, sixty one point five out of one hundred. Michael Blue, Michael Bloomberg, F, fifty five point twenty five out of one hundred. Tulsi Gabbard, F, 55 out of 100. Donald Trump, F, 4.75 out of he wrote, 100. He wrote his name on the test. Yeah. It, it, it's, it is, it, I guess people, I guess they want to hold all the candidates accountable. But I feel like someone like Donald Trump, like, why even put him on here? Because it's like, he's, like, there's nothing, just, like. Just like, for the lols. Yeah, it's not even worth pretending he's anywhere close to promote. Anyway, so. The when I saw people share this, the sort of um, argument they were putting forward, right? Because they were using this scorecard, I think, to make a certain argument, right? It wasn't like, oh, here's this scorecard, judge the candidates on your own. It was like, oh, look at this racial justice scorecard. Elizabeth Warren is the best on racial justice. And I was like, okay, hold up. Like, let's put the brakes before we start making that kind of claim right um yeah. so uh before i go on like peter what was your reaction um, when I should... well yeah i want i got i opened the whole thing um so i've got like the 50 page white paper in front of me and mm -hmm. i mean i this is the kind of thing that i actually think yeah can be beneficial on the left because this is the kind of shit the right does where they like you know or like they'll grade you and then you want to get a certain grade so that you have to hold these positions. But 
I think like there's definitely some fudging in terms of the way of the way they're assessing things. Um, the yeah. main difference between basically it's three Elizabeth Warren beat Bernie Sanders by three points. And all of that three points comes from the racial wealth gap slash housing category, which is divided into three categories, housing, labor, and wealth. Um, And uh, for housing and labor, uh, Bernie gets all the marks for, because he wants to, you know, because he wants to like actually build more public housing, like a lot more, which for the record is the only way we solve the housing affordability crisis. Like you can't just give a bunch of tax breaks to developers and then allow them to build a bunch of shitty condos and then hope the rent comes down. Yeah. Also wants national rent control. And it says he vows to make section eight available to all eligible families without a wait list, which is, I think pretty major. Um, Yeah. $15 minimum wage, federal jobs guarantee, and all that stuff. But they give him a zero on wealth. Specifically, it says, it does not outline a policy plan to build wealth in communities of color. And Elizabeth Warren gets a full full marks in that. Um, And her, um, her great plans to build wealth in communities of color is to promote more investment in activities that help low and moderate or help credit worthy borrowers find affordable mortgages. Um, So she proposes investing $2 billion to support underwater borrowers, build more economic security. Um, Is it the, and have a first-time homebuyer down payment assistance program for low-income people who have lived in formerly redlined or segregated neighborhoods. Um, and the other thing that I guess they're really, that they give her all the marks for is she would create a new small business equity fund and a new Department of Economic Development to help entrepreneurs of color. So... If you kind of drill into that, it's really like for, you know, the, you know, for the all the points she gets, it's really just kind of the basic like homeowning sort of neoliberal stuff that Democrats have been promising forever. But, you know, it doesn't really, I mean, you know, oh, whatever, I'll just say it because I don't. And if someone wants to write a 10 page email why I'm wrong, then they can do that. But that kind of stuff does not really fundamentally change the, you know, system. It does or doesn't change like the material reality so much. It's just like a, it's, you know, like promoting entrepreneurship doesn't really, you know, it's not really a guarantee that it builds wealth in the way that will specifically in a way that will reduce the wealth gap. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, let's just keep it, keep it 100, right? If 
what you want to do is reduce the wealth gap, then maybe redistribute some of the wealth, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So this, yeah, so this will, this is, I'm glad you said it because I think what you pointed out, I think, so a lot of people have been saying like, hey, um, Sanders and Warren, they pretty much had the same policies. So why don't the Sanders, just, Sanders supporters just support Warren? And I think what Peter just pointed out is there is a real, I think, fundamental distinct a difference between Warren and Sanders in terms of their analysis and orientation towards capitalism, right? So Warren is progressive, but to the furthest extent within working within the confines of capitalism. And I think that's you, what yeah. you're seeing in her policies being enumerated there. Like that's the furthest edge you can go in terms of working within capitalism to address racial inequality, right? Whereas Sanders is basically, he's advancing policies that basically kind of go outside the, the capitalist framework. And so like, yeah, when you, when it comes to redistributing wealth, well, okay, one approach is like, okay, you know, build wealth from bottom, bottom up, black businesses, stuff like that. But that, that takes a while. Another approach could just be like, well, have redistributive tax policies that tax the wealthy at a high amount and redistribute that money back downward. And that's another way you could yeah. address the wealth gap. And so, I mean, yeah, if you have, if you have those kinds of tax policies that could have a, that would have a real material benefit to black and brown communities. And I think um, Warren and that's where you see with Warren is that like when it comes to those kinds of tax policies and even with Medicare for all, she sort of hedges on that. Cause remember initially she was a, she was for Medicare for all. Right. Yeah. And then she backpedaled on that. Yeah. She, she yeah, backpedaled. she's like doing a, she wants to officially, which is like, look guys, anytime someone starts breaking up legislation in Congress, that just means that they're kicking the can down the road. They don't intend to actually pass anything it's the same thing with uh immigration reform because the you know that the whole thing was like you know republicans were like we're gonna do it piecemeal which means more border militarization now and then maybe we'll get to legalizing people and it's the same thing where it's like you know we'll do a little bit now so so that like it'll help the poll it'll help my polling but the actual thing that everyone agrees we have to do, you know, we'll, we'll do that in like 10 years or something. And it's and it's based on this idea that like, oh, well, that's how long it takes, which is all that's crap. Like the state, when it really wants to, can do a lot of things very quickly. And it can. Take I mean, a, look. Yeah. It can look how. A, qu look, yeah. I mean, it's sorry to cut you up. But like, I mean, just uh, I'll just bring up this example. Look how quickly it takes us to start a war. Right. It doesn't take us that long to mobilize the armed forces to start a war in another country. We, um, can, we can move the entire, basically the entire army in 40 or anywhere in the world in 48 hours. Yeah. I, look, I mean, it took months to topple. I mean, it took weeks to topple Saddam Hussein in, in Iraq. Right. Yeah. Um, it took it took months to basically topple Gaddafi in Libya. Right. Yeah. And, and even during, you know. During World War II, it, it it didn't take that long to mobilize the state to, for, you know, to to shift the economy to a war based economy, which played an even bigger role in getting the U.S. out of the Great Depression, yeah. probably even more so than the New Deal. Right, the state was mobilized to do the New Deal, 
So yeah, like when the state wants to do something, it can do it. So this idea that like, oh, you have to wait um, five million years before you get single payer healthcare. Yeah, that that that's a farce. Yeah, and that's a total farce. And I mean, the point I always try to make to people about the difference between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren is basically like Warren is running as a technocrat, as someone who has a lot of great plans, very well thought out, well written plans, on, print, printed on very nice paper. Um, and she's going to get in there and she's going to do them and they will be done. And then we'll get back to whatever weird vision of America you thought was amazing in 2010 or whatever. And there's, you know, there's this little problem called Mitch McConnell, right? And, and so, the Republican yeah. Party he represents. And it's like every single Democrat knows this. And I've yet to see how, you know, Elizabeth Warren or, you know, anyone else, Biden or Pete or Klobuchar, how they are going to solve that problem. Bernie, you can maybe disagree with whether or not it will be entirely effective, but at least he has an idea of popular mobilization to, you know, shift the ground that will shift, you know, the political window. And that's, you know, really, the Repub- you're not going to be able to work with these people, the Republican Party. And even, even if you take back the Senate, which we're probably not going, we, oh my God, I'm telling on myself, they're, the Democrats are probably not going to do. Yeah, I'll go. So, like my critiques of 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 this scorecard, which I think, I think again, it's, it really isn't about the organization itself, but I think it kind of shows the limitations of liberal thinking when it comes to addressing issues that impact Black people and people of color. So, one of my issues was so in one in. in another part of their methodology so like peter i have the the their methodology of their scorecard in front of me so they have on record rhetoric and so oh yeah yeah that one that that was like them putting their thumb on the scale except i think yes bernie got an eight and also elizabeth warren got an eight um, yeah, so historic support is is um is five weird. points. So this is the, that to me I felt like was a red flag in terms of this methodology yeah. because if you're trying to assess candidates on racial justice, it's not enough to look at their platform because any candidate can say anything on their platform particularly during an election. And so now you're you're in a, an election environment where yeah, I think people are a lot more sensitive to race issues now, especially with someone like Donald Trump in office. And I think, you know, Black Lives Matter, what it did, it made a lot of guilty white liberals sort of a little bit a little bit more like on their P's and Q's when it comes to race, right? So you're going to see yeah. like white politicians do their best to kowtow to black voters and try to say all the right woke and race buzzwords in order to get the black vote so that Um, is going to sound all fine and dandy on on the surface of it but for me in my in my opinion i think someone's historic record when it comes to racial justice that deserves 
um, a higher count in this kind of methodology. Because, and I think if you were to put that, then I think this 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 count might look a little bit different. So Joe Biden got a D. I, I, also, you know, I also just want to jump in because it's in yeah. that category. And this is the thing mm-hmm. that really kind of makes me upset. At the, at the, the last thing, the last sentence in Warren's, um, yeah, they do all the thing. I mean, her whole Native American fakery thing is is really yep. it is honestly for the intersectional crew it is extremely bad and i don't yeah. understand how they can just give her a pass on it but the, they, I wanna, they, yeah yeah they, they were sorry to cut you off but like oh. yeah like that i'm glad you brought that up because that, that like if you're gonna say that you care about racial justice right and especially someone like warren who's doing a pretty good job of saying the right stuff she's doing a really good job of saying the right stuff but if that's your concern to address structural racism it's a huge red flag when a white person has spent much of their career passing themselves off as native american yes while and and getting job yeah sorry and, and getting job benefits that were meant for native americans when you're not native american that's a huge red flag so if, if someone is if someone is going forth saying, you know, I'm in solidarity with people of color, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, wait a minute, for much of your career, um, you lied and said you're a Native American. And, and maybe not lie, but like because people I mean, are probably going to be like, uh, she she knew she she thought she, she knew. She, and da, 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 she, but it's like, heavily, she deep tissue massaged the truth. Yes, there you go. Yeah, because because last time I checked, like you know, is because the thing about any kind of racial identity, like you have to be assimilated into a community to really claim it. And as far as I know, like I haven't seen any indication to show that like Elizabeth Warren herself has fully assimilated herself into any particular Native American. No, I mean tribe or nation. I mean it's. I mean it. Blood quantum's a very controversial subject that I'm not going to get into, but it's like right, yeah. When it comes yeah, to be, it's like you either are or not a member of the nation, right? It's not right, but, and there's tribal membership and all yeah. that. So, but I wanted, I just want to get to the last sentence where it says she's offered a plan to address black maternal deaths and has highlighted the experiences of black women workers and activists during the campaign, whatever that means. Um, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren's plan to address maternal mortality is very, very questionable because it's basically mm-hmm. like the no child left behind model where like, you know, basically they're going to threaten to close underperforming hospitals if they don't meet this scorecard or whatever, which like, mm-hmm. I mean, no child left Whoa. behind, like wow decimated like school systems and that's yeah, did. that's exactly the kind of neoliberal plan making that like is bad and like it's like no that's a bad plan that's not a plan that should exist and also like the experienced i mean highlighting the experiences of you know that's a that's that's that doesn't mean anything i don't know what that means but i will say that when that while Warren is doing that, Bernie, you know, in Iowa was campaigning for the right of home health care workers to unionize. And that is the kind that is much more like intersectional in the sense of like 
that's a predominantly woman of color field where like you know that that will you know like that that's a material improvement in their lives it's not listening and acknowledging people's experiences that's something that can materially improve people's lives and all of bernie's plans are centered around that they aren't centered around you know how good it looks on paper yeah and like let's let's make a distinction between listening to the voices of marginalized people versus material benefit look you could like a white listening to people of color what material impact does it have on the day-to-day lives of people of color because a white person can listen to let's say any kind of really fucked up story about a black person's encounter with like police violence but that doesn't translate into actually changing anything about this situation at hand it doesn't stop the rampant police violence from happening in the first place so you can listen all you want that doesn't improve someone's lives on a day-to-day basis so yeah like there's a distinction i mean it's yes listen listen to marginalized communities and their experiences but there's a step you have to take beyond that. Listening's not just enough. Yeah, there I has mean, to be I mean, an the, actual. Yeah, the NSA is listening all the time to everyone. Right. So, another thing I want to bring up, and this is like, this is one, one another like huge red flag. Not really just particularly with this scorecard, but the whole discussion. They brought up reparations, right? So I want to like let's make a clear. Just as a journalist, I'm, as a journalist, I want to fact check this. Okay, yeah. The only the only presidential candidate who supported reparations in the sense of coming up with a proposed policy to implement reparations is Marianne Williamson. Yeah. No one else has done that. Cory Booker came out with baby bonds. Okay, that that's that's fine, but that's not reparations. Wait, what's, that's not the, that's, that's I, what's a, that. I didn't even know. It's basically. Baby bonds is basically like to kind of sum it up. You're you're essentially um, when when children are born, you get, basically from the day that they're born, you give them like a bond. So like so a trust fund grow. for everyone. Kind of yeah. So which is like and that's supposed to close a racial wealth gap. And it's like oh, oh, okay, but that's not reparations. No, that's like, that's not the same it thing. Doesn't, it doesn't matter if like the bottom if every black person makes an extra $5,000 a year, if like, that's not going to close the wealth gap. If white billionaires are, you know, raking in money are earning an extra $5 billion a year, right? Like it's the, it's the UBI equivalent of reparations. That's basically what it is. It's like, it's basically it's the baby bonds is like a, universal basic income version of reparations so i want to make that clear no candidate has put forward a, an actual policy to implement reparations what they're really and i and i looked at the scorecards so they gave most of the candidates got seven out of ten for reparations and what, what they based it on was largely their support for hr 40 and for those of you who don't know hr 40 is a is a bill in congress and the bill is basically to create a commission to study and propose reparations it's not to implement reparations so let's make this clear hr hr 40 is to support the study of reparations so basically what pete and this is what warren warren signed warren basically announced that she supports hr 40 so basically people like warren are saying that they support the study of reparations 
not the implementation of reparations, because you can say you support studying reparations, but whether or not you want to actually implement reparations in whatever form it is, that's completely different. And someone could say like, yeah, I support the study of reparations, but then when it comes time to actually implement reparations and actually look at like, yeah, let's actually look at how much money a lot of wealthy white people made off of slavery. When it comes time to hand in that invoice and start cashing out that payment, then they could be like, oh, you know what? We're not going to do that. That's, that's that's too much. Because here's the reality that the entire U.S. economy was based on slavery. There are several institutions from banks to individuals. Insurance. To major ins- Basically, insurance all companies. insurance, like the entire insurance industry was born out of insuring slaves. The stock market, the Wall Street was was a slave trading market. So the, the, the entire the entire modern capitalist system we have today exists because of slavery. So once you start really thinking about reparations, once you start going down that rabbit hole, you're going to really have to question the foundation of the economy that we live in. So when you want to seriously start addressing reparations, you're going to have to tackle that system. And when it comes time to tackling that, I yeah. highly doubt any of these candidates would have not not even the guts to do that not even bernie sanders and here's the thing about sanders at least he's consistent like he's consistent about like like he's at least a little a little bit honest in the sense that like how are you going to do it and that's that was his stance so i don't agree with his his stance but he's he's consistent i'll give him that he's consistent it was also just like people were ambushing him i mean that whole thing was stupid and it was just another I mean, they're, they're always trying to get them off message, which is what you do in a campaign. Um, every, everything, if you're wondering why they're get going at him with just like the stupidest shit imaginable, like it doesn't matter that it's stupid. The point is just that there's just a new thing every week that he has to talk about that isn't Medicare for all. That isn't That isn't his actual policies. And that's how that campaign cycle works. And that's and that's reparations is one of those tactics. Yeah. So it's like, okay, Bernie doesn't outright and say he doesn't outright say he supports reparations. Therefore, so the discussion goes from Bernie Sanders' response is like, well, how are you going to pay out reparations? What are you going to do? He it goes from that to basically, oh, Bernie Sanders does not support reparations. Then it gets to, okay, Bernie is against black people, and then Elizabeth okay. Warren says, well, technically, what she said was, I support HR forty, I support the study of reparations, racism is bad, blah blah blah. blah. That's like, oh, okay. Elizabeth Warren supports reparations, which again, she did not support reparations. She supports the study of reparations. It's not the same thing as implementing reparations. And I feel like I have to say this again and again and Mm -hmm. again. It's not supporting reparations and supporting the study of reparations are two separate things. Every candidate supports the study of reparations. The only candidate who supported reparations in, in the sense of actually coming out with a plan to pay out and implement reparations was Marianne Williamson, right? So that just... Iron Dyer is like kind of on board with it. Yeah, I mean, well, he, 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 you know... Whatever. He he wants to be Bernie's friend, so that he... he, Tom Star is lonely. That's just what it is. He's, He's just like... He wants people to like him. He's like, hey, Bernie, what's up? Bernie's like, like, whatever. Like, have you, did you not just hear me spend, like, I've been spending the last four years talking about how terrible billionaires are. Like, like, what do you think? Like, what do you think's going on, Tom? Yeah. Um, so we're basically at an hour. Um, yeah. 
Do so, we want to? Yeah, I guess let's. I guess we can start wrapping up. Um, yeah. So explain, yeah, maybe we'll, explain we'll, some of our plans for the future for this for this pod. Yeah. So um, yeah. So that was. I mean, just to, I'll just wrap. Up. So to to start, I'll wrap up our discussion on on this scorecard. But I one reason why I wanted to bring up this scorecard is to um kind of just just have an actual retort to the common discourse on racial justice and particularly how it's being used in this election cycle and i think for anyone who you know says they support racial justice and i don't want to you know go into questioning people's motivations blah, 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 but it's like you know hey if, if you're I, someone who i have a question of what racial justice <laughs> even means anymore <laughs> You know what? Actually, let's talk about that. I, I don't care. We'll, we'll go a couple extra minutes. <laughs> Who cares? Let's go a couple extra minutes because, yeah, actually, I'm glad you said that because, okay, what is racial justice? So, Peter, what would, you, what do you think racial justice um, is? Because I have my opinion. I, you know, as someone who's grew up in the social justice tradition, let's say that's what the Unitarian Church is like. I suppose it's just like an idea of equity in fairness um that that this current state of being the current state of affairs is unfair for this group of people and so we need to do things to make it fair um i don't ever understand like when that is accomplished like what you know what state of affairs in the liberal framework would be what where would we get to where justice is achieved when has that happened in history where there is an injustice you know of committed and then like we did some liberal thing and then now there was justice right Mm -hmm. so that's my that's my beef that's my main beef the other thing is that justice is just like a buzzword and so now there's Instead of just talking about housing, it's housing justice. Instead of just talking about food access, it's food justice and everything justice. And it's like, what is, and I don't under, you know, it's, it just doesn't mean anything. It's like, it's, you know, and the third thing is that like, I think people forget, like there are different kinds of justice and maybe like Old Testament justice is, uh, (laughs) is what's called for in some situations, you know, swift and merciless. I'm just saying like justice as a concept isn't always this nice um you know noble honorable friendly thing i mean you know it's about evening the scales you know the ba- like the balance has been upset and you have to even you have to restore that balance and that can that doesn't always mean like through nice ways um so that's why i guess little soapbox on that i when i think of racial justice like i i like to think more in terms of um black liberation than than justice so what i mean by that is um i think there's this meme this picture where it's like there's this uh i think like this baseball game and there's a fence and there's people of different heights yeah, so like, so the tallest person, no matter what, can see over the fence. The person who's mid height needs like one box to see it, to to see over the fence. Then there's the shortest person who needs two boxes to see over the fence. And so it seems like the conventional sort of 
discourse on racial justice is like okay just just give this the short medium height person one box and the shortest person two box boxes to see over that fence and my thing is well get rid of the fence so yeah, that everyone can right, see yeah. it yeah right so so i i like to think of racial justice in terms of black liberation in the in the sense of like we need to be free of the system that that keeps us keeps us in a state of oppression and and in a state where we can never achieve full human dignity and so for me it's like what 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 does it look like when people are truly free and can be truly free dignified human beings in a world where you know you don't have systems where there's such that produces massive inequality endless war violence so for me the real question is like how do we liberate ourselves from that system and how do we chip away at that system to get us to the goal of liberation and to me what it seems like a lot of the rhetoric when it comes to racial justice a lot of it i think they don't say it outright but i think it's it's sort of subtle and assumed they assume that there's no future beyond the current state of affairs which which would basically mean like there's no future for black people outside of american capitalism so it's like we kind of have to make do with the economic state of affairs as is you just kind of make it a little bit more comfortable but you're not fully going to challenge the system or get rid of it and replace it with something new and for me the real question is like how do you get rid of the current system as it is and replace it with something far more better for humane not just for black people for but for every human being on the planet and especially with the yeah. climate crisis, that's something we're going to have to think about because we're at the point where it's like we have very little time <laughs> when it comes to the survival of the human species on this planet. So we have to start asking these big questions. And I think like the the current discourse on racial justice, and this is kind of where I feel frustrated, is that it's, it's limitations of what justice looks like is very, very limited. But it's dressed up in a way where it seems very radical when like you actually dig into the nitty gritty of it it's not that radical. So, and I think like yeah. that's, that's the reason why I want to show this scorecard because I think to me, it's that shows like the limitations of the current liberal progressive woke thinking on race. Yeah. And another thing I want to mention is that I, cause, my cons- Oh, I was just- so, uh, I'll just finish with this last okay. point. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Just, but for racial justice, one thing I do want to mention, it was definitely left out of the scorecard is foreign policy. Because a lot of our wars impact black and brown people overseas. Our drone strikes hit Iraq, like, you know, Somalia, Yemen, Libya. Um, we've been threatening a war with Iran. Um, you know, it, we had a, a war in Iraq that lasted almost 20 years, damn near destroyed the country, mm-hmm. killed hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and, and that's just in, in that's just in recent U.S. history. I mean, you can go back to the Cold War and the number of coups and CIA inter- interventions and bodies and the Vietnam bodies. War and the, the number the 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 sheer amount of bloodshed and dead bodies that are stacked up as a result of the U.S. imperial war machine that has been killing black and brown people overseas. That to me is what I consider. A matter of racial justice because it's not enough to limit racial justice just to the confines of the borders of the United States. You also have to look at what's going on in and Guantanamo, yeah. our foreign foreign policy in Latin America, our wars in the Middle East, and on and on and on. So that was absent from that scorecard, which I think well, was a, the and, major ding. And guess who loves America's war machine? 
I mean, lots of people, <laughs> but he's a lot of people. Um, specifically Elizabeth Warren. And oh yes, if you ever bring that up with a Warren supporter, they get pretty quiet pretty quickly. Um, they oh, don't yeah. like to talk about it. Um, and and Bernie and Bernie Sanders has been kind of that's been one of my gripes with Sanders is especially as someone who co- has been covering drone strikes yeah. in Guantanamo. I I really you know Sanders has been pretty good on on you know particularly oh. challenging just the level of economic inequality in America. That's a huge thing, but. He's been very mild when it comes to foreign policy and war, and and there are a lot of I think very legitimate left critiques of of Sanders when it comes yeah. to Palestine he, he and, ha- and foreign policy. He has it easy because he's like the only non monster in the Senate, right? And right, and right. so he can just and so like he you know he, he he's not someone who want he does and I believe he is sincere about wanting to majorly cut the defense budget and i am very curious as to how they would ever let him do that um but there's definitely room for improvement on that front with bernie yeah and, and so to to wrap up um yeah because it's, it's over an hour so to wrap up um yeah i think um this is sort of just our first episode i think other episodes um you know we're gonna be coming a number number of issues i mean i personally um would like to do an entire episode on guantanamo particularly the history of um the u.s base there going back to the spanish american war and even further um uh so i'd like to that'll probably that'll definitely that's something i i I, you know definitely want to sort of uh plan in in the future um other issues like when it comes to our foreign policy, the on, ongoing police violence in America. Um, and obviously, yeah, it's an election, so we're going to be... I, I really hope we don't it. have to talk about the election in the sense yeah. that, like, there isn't... But I know there can, it's only going to get worse. There's a lot more bullshit to come. And part of, you know, I mean, part of the reason we're doing this is so that we can say this out loud instead of just yelling to ourselves <laughs> yeah, right. um, so you know we'll just I, yell at you guys yeah we'll I, I definitely have a lot of I mean I always get ambitious plans with projects but I think what I really want to do one thing I really want to do with this is highlight you know the actual class divides within black America um, mm-hmm. which yeah. is something that people do not like to talk about um yeah you know and get into also a lot of the like you know sort of political economy aspects you know of how black america is situated in the world as you know basically an underdeveloped country and understanding it as such um i also you know are we i would like to do more, you know, talk about African politics and African affairs more. Yeah. Um, you know, eventually we'll talk about China, I'm sure. Um, get into, I think in a lot of the bonus stuff, you know, get into some of the, his, a lot of the history of liberation, black liberation. There's so many books that like I either have read and want to, and are essays I want to revisit or basically 
use this podcast as an excuse to read them. So, yeah, um, you know, it's it'll be a lot of good stuff. So people really should subscribe and stick around because we'll be giving you like the real like real theory, you know, real, real Mark that real Marxist shit. You know, we won't soft pedal it and we won't hide behind like liberal obfuscations. I mean, so that's that's my sales. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and to, to piggyback off of that, like, you know, as a, like I said before, I'm a pan-Africanist. And so I, I want to kind of get into the sort of the history of, of, of pan-Africanism. Cause I think there are some misconceptions about what it is. And like, you know, we're called the real Sankara hours. We named it after yeah. Thomas Sankara. So I just, I I just watched def- the upright man in preparation for this. It's it yeah, was, it was great. People we'll, we'll do it. We got to do an episode on that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we'll do an episode on Thomas Sankar because uh, he's he's a very I think underappreciated um, figure in global uh, black liberation, and and yeah, uh, you know Peter and I were talking earlier about the class dynamics within the black community, and that's something I'm pretty sure is might be a recurring theme with us because that's something we talk about a lot, and and I will say that I do think some of the obstacles to black liberation in my opinion stem from the uh the politics of the the so-called black misleadership class so and and i also and i also think like yeah and i and also think like you know there are certain discussions about black politics and even class and black america that honestly get left out of white left spaces because you know yeah like i mean we're all left and we're all you know blah 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 it's like you know like peter and i are coming from very different experiences as we you know announced earlier and so like a lot of times like you know our perspectives and in history and traditions um oftentimes get overlooked in in white dominated uh left spaces so that's that's a gap we want to fill because there's a lot of intellectual history and tradition that matter today. Um, then that needs to be, de- uh, yeah. Um, dived, um, de- be delved into. So, yeah. So look, look, be on the lookout for that. Um, anything else you want to say, Peter? Or should we just, uh, um, close out drinking cult 45. Oh, nice. Um, I'm drinking a fucking hazy IPA. I'm almost done with it. It's the last one I have. Um, what kind? Yeah. Uh, is it uh, the Sierra Nevada? Yeah. I just want to get some cheap stuff yeah. at Safeway. So. All right. Yeah. Suspect. Okay. Let's let's stop this. Then we. All right. Cool. All right. Peace. Hey everyone, Adam here. I hope you liked our first episode. Um, that was the first episode of our podcast, Real Sankara Hours. Um, we were talking about this racial justice scorecard that was scoring each candidate on racial justice. It's something I've been seeing a lot of progressive friends of mine um, pass around. And uh, toward the end, Peter and I were discussing reparations because one of the um, issues that uh, they addressed in the scorecard to give a final score for each rep, uh, each candidate on rep, on on racial justice uh was reparations so the total score was 100 
reparations, their stance on reparations, the total possible they could have got was 10. So 10 out of 100, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty important. So, um, and I think there was a lot of, um, there's been a lot of obfuscation and confusion between, you know, studying, supporting the study of reparations versus supporting the implementation of reparations. And so far, a lot of the candidates who've been saying that they support reparations, a lot, you have to read between the lines because a lot of it really hinges on their support for H.R. 40, which is a bill to study reparations. So there's some conflation between supporting reparations and studying reparations. Um, so, for example, so for example, um, for uh, their for the this scorecards uh, methodology, what they say for Warren, and I'm pulling it up right here. This is their 50-page uh, kind of paper, white paper on like their methodology and the details of. It's like a detailed breakdown of each candidate, um, their stance on the issue, and the the number, the number, the sort of the numbers they get on e each each thing. So Warren gets seven out of ten. It says Warren has expressed strong support for reparations, and that largely hinges on again her support for HR 40, which is again to support the study of reparations which is different than, than supporting reparations. Someone can support the study of reparations, but then change their mind when it comes time to actually implement reparations. Um, which, again, like if you really think seriously about, about reparations, that's you're going to have to think really carefully about the foundation of the American economy. Um, and so once you go down that rabbit hole, I highly doubt like any of these candidates would be willing to go that far to truly implement um, reparations. So anyway... Um, even for Klobuchar, uh, she also got a seven out of 10, but there is this, um, Hill article where essentially she said, let me pop it up right here. Um, where she said is, yes, this Hill, this Hill article, um, where Klobuchar basically says, um, she was asked about reparations. This was last year. This is March 17th, 2019. And, uh, when asked about reparations, Klobuchar said, uh, she supports investing in those communities that have been so hurt by racism. And then um, she also said that, um, you know, it doesn't have to be a direct pay for each person. Then she added, but we, what we can do is invest in those communities, acknowledge what's happened, making sure we have that shared dream of opportunity for all Americans. So this is, this is very vague because reparations is specifically for, um, for the descendants of enslaved Africans in America, right? Um, that's a very, very particular plight um, that is a lot more specific than just being hurt by racism because there are a lot of other community colors, communities of color that have been hurt by racism. But when you're talking about African-Americans, like our plight is different in the sense of like we were brought here involuntarily from Africa as slaves to the United States. And so reparations is supposed to essentially repair the damage of centuries long of centuries long pain caused by slavery racism Jim Crow so her response I think is like it sounds nice on paper but it's incredibly vague and it doesn't get to the issue at hand which is again reparations for um, slavery and also investing in communities like that's I mean that that again it sounds vague like that doesn't sound like how what what how does that translate to an actual reparations policy so it seems like they're taking this sort of fairly vague 
answer Klobuchar is giving on reparations and then giving her a 7 out of 10, which I think is pretty generous. So uh, when I was looking through this, I felt like, okay, they're giving them 7 out of 10, which I think is pretty generous on fairly mild stances on reparations, right? So what I did is uh, I rescored. So what I did was I gave, you know, those five candidates um, one out of 10 on the issue of reparations because I felt like they're just kind of doing a very, very, very bare minimum, right? To me, it would make more sense to like, okay, look at each candidate's plan to actually implement reparations and then kind of score from there, right? And again, like their, their statements, like to call to say that they support reparations, I think is very being very, very generous and, and misleading for a lot of people, honestly. Because I, I've noticed there are a lot of, I think, well-meaning people who say they support racial justice and say they support reparations, but it's like you really have to think through like what you actually mean when it comes to saying you support reparations. So that's why I, I gave them each a 1 out of 10, because I think it's, it's important to have a high standard when it comes to reparations. So... Um, I rescored for five of the candidates, the top five candidates, Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Steyer. They each get one out of ten on, on, on reparations. So that basically means I looked at their top score. I subtracted six points from each because to go, you know, go from seven to one, that's subtract six. So I just deducted six points from uh, their respective scores. And the end result is interesting, and this is something I want to highlight. So... For Warren, based on my scoring, what I did, she goes down from an A- of 91 over 100 to 85 over 100, which is basically a B. So according to my score, Warren gets a B. Sanders, he goes down from 82 over 100, which is a B+, plus, down to, uh, sorry, Sanders gets it. He, he, what he has is an 88 on there. So he has an 88 out of, out of 100 on their scorecard, which is a B+. Plus. And he goes down to an 82 over 100 based on my scoring, which is basically like a B, B minus around there. Like, like basically, I, would, I would say like B minus, something like that. Um, Buttigieg, he has a B plus 86 over 100 on their scorecard. On mine, he gets 80 over 100, which is a B minus. Uh, Klobuchar on theirs, she has a C, which is a 73.5 out of 100. Based on my scoring, she goes down to a 67.5 out of 100, which is, yeah, a D. So she go, so Klobuchar goes from a C to a D. And Steyer, he has a D on theirs, 67.5 out of 100. And he goes down to, based on my scoring, a 60.5, which is like basically a D minus borderline F. So when I rescored it, as you can tell, none of these candidates got A's. Or a or a minus so, um, I think that's something to think about because I thought the way they were grading on um, reparations was pretty generous, and it, it seemed like to me that they're grading on a curve, a very generous curve, and I think that curve really has had an impact on this scorecard and how it looks. And so, you know, when you look at Warren and Sanders in particular, like you're going from a B to like a B slash B minus, which is like that. That's yeah, that's pretty close. I mean, A minus to B plus is pretty close too, but like, you know, when you look on paper, A minus looks a lot better than a B plus, right? So, you know, if you're a student in class, you'd be pretty sure you'd be a lot happier getting an A minus versus a B plus, right? So, yeah, based on my scoring, none of these candidates got A's. Um, 
and I just did this kind of like just just as an experiment, but I thought it was a really interesting experiment because, um, again, I thought the scoring was really generous, and I think by seriously, you know, reading between the lines on an issue like reparations and anything connected to institutional racism, uh, I, I think it's really important to to hold candidates to a much higher standard than the current discourse does. So um, again. Based on my scoring, none of them get A's. And I think particularly for people during this election uh, cycle who are, you know, post-Black Lives Matter, the issue of racism is kind of on, on people's minds, especially with Trump in office. So, you know, if you're going to use a scorecard like this to show like, hey, you know, my candidate's is better than yours on, on racial justice, I think it's really important to uh, read between the lines on that. So anyway, uh, that ends this addendum to this episode. Um, Stay tuned for um, more episodes of Real Sankara Hours. Peace.